when something stops or challenges you, think about where the bias is. And if it's a good bias or a bad bias, address it for what it is and then make a decision and live with it. Own your decision. Welcome to the Sask Entrepreneurs Podcast. Each week, we bring you an interview featuring an entrepreneur or business leader in the Saskatchewan province. We dive into their journey, lessons learned, and views on the outlook of the Saskatchewan business market. This episode is brought to you by TwoWeb. Growing your business online is overwhelming. At TwoWeb, we make it simple. Our agency has helped over 700 businesses and nonprofit organizations grow through digital marketing. Learn more and reach out to us at TwoWeb.ca. Welcome to today's episode of Sask Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm actually very excited today to have Claire Belanger Parker, who is known as a great Saskatchewan ambassador. She began her entrepreneurial business in 1999 in tourism and event management. Following an eight-year career at Radio, at Radio Canada from 1989 to 1997, Claire founded the CNT Management Group, which has led her to build a strong reputation received multiple awards and recognition in tourism and business excellent. Claire has contributed to multiple boards over the years, Tourism Regina, Connexus Art Center, Tourism Saskatchewan, just to name a few. She is currently on the board of the Francophone Economic Development Organization for Saskatchewan. She is also serving her first term with the Women Entrepreneurs of Saskatchewan and serves on the Saskatchewan Council the Canadian Society of Association Executives. In the last 10 years, Claire has purposely transitioned to association management, which has truly become her playground. Claire, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to see you today. Excellent. So Claire, I've actually been going through your background and it's quite insightful to learn about your journey. Tell us a little about your backstory and how you ended up in this role. Wow, it's a long journey. It's been, you know, celebrating 40 years in Saskatchewan this year. I was born and raised in Quebec and French was my first language. And uh, moving to Western Canada, I felt a little bit like an immigrant in my own country at times, uh, certainly. You know, growing up, I had a vision of the world that being unilingual Franco was limiting me. So I wanted to explore the rest of the country for sure made a, a quick stay in Vancouver and relocated in Saskatchewan because of my partner's uh, employment at that time. And really, you know, I lived uh, in various parts of Saskatchewan. I spent two years in Isla La Crosse in northern Saskatchewan in a beautiful, beautiful Métis community and relocated to Regina in 1989, uh, where I began working at, the, at Radio Canada for an eight-year career. And eventually, I often say that Radio Canada gave me my future back in 1997 when there was a massive layoff across Canada. And that's when I, I realized that there was a great need for bilingual services in the tourism and the event uh, community in Saskatchewan. And that's all, all big, you know, it's, it's history now. It's been several years, over 20 years of business. And you came to Saskatchewan about 40 years ago? Yes. 40 years this wow. year. Wow. Yes. So obviously you've been involved in a lot of different organizations and you've helped them, you know, as, as a board member, along with uh, giving them direction. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what is it that you love about doing business in Saskatchewan? To me, Saskatchewan is still at the beginning of its love story. It's at the very, there's still so much that's needed here for a business to establish themselves. And, and I feel that every time I open the door, there is an opportunity there for people to, to flourish in business in Saskatchewan. We're still growing so fast now with waves of new immigrants coming to the country, new language new opportunities for people to work in and with. What I love about this province is, you know, whatever you want to get started, do a good market analysis and there is great potential. And people here, it's, I don't know how to describe it. They're hungry for change. They're, they're hungry for new things. And I love, it's a beautiful playground to be in. Obviously, for the past 10 years, you've been focusing primarily on association management. So let's talk a little bit about that because, uh, you know, I think it's a much needed service. We have some wonderful associations here, organizations here in Saskatchewan uh, that are working for great causes. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about what is it that you specifically do to help other associations? Certainly. I have to confess, I'm a governance junkie. I love governance. I absolutely love the way that you can bring the smartest people in an organization or, or from an industry to come together for a common purpose. And oftentimes, I think in the past, and I've seen it time and time again, people went on to board work because they thought it would look good on their resume. That is passé, very, very passé. Today, a good governance board, a good governing board can do amazing work together. And I work with boards. I, I work with the Crane Rental Association of Canada. Very few people know that because I'm, I'm active in so many forums here in Saskatchewan that my work nationally is not known at all. But to work on the board that has the leadership of the largest companies in Canada, the representation from worldwide crane operations. It's such a pleasure to bring, to work with people that have one focus toward the future of this organization and the growth of the industry, the safety of the industry and its workers. And when you have people that really understand their role and responsibilities, around the board structure, it's absolutely magical. The things that you can accomplish in terms of developing best practices, in terms of accountability, transparency, is remarkable. And I do this work in French with Francophone organization. I do this work with English organization and, and the Crane Rental Association. Being a national association, I get to do this with French-speaking board members and English-speaking board members. It's just a really exciting, and I think it might come across a little bit that I'm really passionate about governance work. So what are some of the biggest challenges that you face when you're working with associations? The biggest challenge is when you have people that come with a personal agenda. They're here, you know, they take a board position because it looks good on their resume, because they have a business that they want to sell to everyone, and it becomes a relationship that is can become toxic because then the language that people use, the, the conversation always about me, 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 centered around 
what I can do for you and what I have to sell you or, you know, you should hire me because I'm, you know, I do this or I do that. When you get one or two people around a board structure of nine to 12 people, 13, that are there for that purpose and do not understand the relationship that has to be cohesive around the table, that we're there for an industry, for a cause, for an or, you know, a, a global mission, everything starts falling apart. So you have to have a strong leadership at the helm, a good chair, a good president or chair, depending, people use both terms. If you have a strong president or chair that can address it respectfully and with diplomacy, then you can resolve the issue very quickly. Either the person will say, oh, I get it. I was not aware that's how association operated. Or you will get someone says, well, I don't want to waste my time here. I'm here to get my business up and running. I don't have to contribute to the industry. I just want to get my, my business up and running. So once the person has had that conversation, they quickly either resign and move on to other causes or will jump with both feet and really understand their role and responsibilities. Mm. You know, you've actually touched a very important point here, and uh, I can actually relate to that personally because uh, I've been invited to be on a board for some organizations, and I have to check what my intentions are if I were to be on that board and also what I can contribute. You know, we all have scarce time and time is our greatest asset. And when we are giving time to an organization, we're contributing our, our efforts. We want to make sure that they result in something. As, and what I feel personally, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that the vision has to be aligned. Everyone has to be bought into the vision of the organization. And if people are kind of stepping back and taking the direction elsewhere, then it can be a very big challenge for the organization to move forward. So. Have you run across some challenges like that? And, and more so, when you do run across challenges like that, how do you deal with them? You brought a really good point there. Is As entrepreneurs, we choose the organization we want to serve as a board. For me, it's economic development. To me, when people who have a purpose to keep our economy moving forward work together in a cohesive approach to economic development. They're not just looking at their own little world. They're looking at the entire province. They're looking at export and import. They're looking at large company relocating to Saskatchewan. And that's how my brain works. When you have a board and people come and they're just about themselves you have to have the conversation. You, you have to have good code of conducts or code of ethics as to what are the conversations that are within the parameters of our organization. What are those guidelines? When a board does not have strong policies and procedures to keep people aligned, going in the same direction, you will very quickly start going sideways and Start doing things that are not aligned with your mission at all. So anytime a board comes together and someone says, I got a great idea, you have to sit back, listen to it, and ask yourself the question, is this aligned with our mandate, our mission? And are we still going forward to creating a safer industry or 
a more vibrant industry? Are we going to be creating jobs? Are we going to be supporting our people by engaging in this idea? So to me, if you have good policies and good governance in place, everything comes together, but it starts with one thing, and that is onboarding processes. So when people come together on the board, the time that you invest in training, in onboarding these people so that they understand their role and responsibilities, the three or four hours that you spend helping your board understand where you're going and how you're going to get there and what are the tools they have, you will solve half, I would say almost 75% of the complication that most boards uh, encounter today. That is so true. I mean, I think that sometimes... um... I can really, from hiring an employee perspective, the first 90 90 days are very critical and there needs to be a process to help onboard employees and same with the board as well, because I think what happens is that sometimes nonprofits or organizations, they they tend to get desperate at times if they don't have all the places filled and and they're looking for people to actually join the board. And there needs to be some sort of a screening process and the onboarding process can definitely help screen who's coming on on board and, and obviously the activities that they need to be performing. Like, do you have any advice on that onboarding process? What should organizations be looking at? I think every organization has to be transparent in in who's around the board. I mean, you need to have a good competency analysis of the people around the board. Do you have people with competencies in marketing? Do you have people with competencies in, in HR, in policies, in governance, in accounting, in legal? I mean, you don't want them to be working in terms of if you have a governance board, you you have to be careful that people are not taking on a job while they're on the board. They are there to advise, to guide and support the CEO and the staff. What's important is, is really having, surrounding yourself with people that have competencies that you don't have. And if every board would look at that, you know, I've worked with directors, CEO, purposely seek out people that have no competencies because they want people that don't even know what they're responsible for. They don't want people to get involved in the business. They don't want people to ask questions, review financial statement, take care of anything. And that to me is the biggest red flag. And I have left board for that reason. I've left organizations for that reason. So it's important that when you are committed to a board, that you pay attention to your role and responsibilities because, you know, fiscal responsibilities, legal responsibilities. uh, I can tell you stories that will raise the hair on the back of your neck. People do not understand how important you have to look at your board as an entity that is there to protect the integrity of the organization. And that involves so many different things. To me, it's you know, it's a work that I am so passionate about, but people go on board not realizing how important it is for them to be aware of their legal and fiscal responsibilities. Is it different if it's profit, for-profit versus non-profit? I think so. You know, people go on a board for a business with a different outlook. You know, I do encounter more and more social entrepreneurs 
people who have a business, and I consider myself a social entrepreneur. I have a business. Sure, I want to get paid for my worth. I want to get paid to keep my business open. I want to get paid to pay my bills. And I want to get paid to have a life that I enjoy with my spouse and my kids, my grandkids. But my first goal is not about getting rich. It's about having an impact. It's about supporting my community. And and that's just me. And I encounter more and more business owners who feel that way. And the younger they are, even more so, because this new generation of social entrepreneurs is going to transform the world. But right now, the difference to me is, and you hear it within the first conversation, how much money is that going to make us? You know, if you sit on the board for a corporation, it's about the shareholders. It's about how much money the shareholders are going to make. When you sit on the board of a governance board that has a social vision or mission around it, even though they're all business owners, they come together for a cause. And if I take the Crane Rental Association of Canada, although all these companies are there to make money and grow their business, when we come together as an organization, we are there to keep workers safe and bring together conversation around safety. We are there to bring diversity, inclusivity, and equity around the crane industry, which is very challenging in a male-dominated world. We're also there about making building partnership with indigenous community. That is the role of the organization. And the work that we do around the board table is to equip, is to provide resources, policies, and protocols that business owners who are around our table and within the association can then go home, use these policies, use these best practices to incorporate within their own business to grow their business for the future. So going back to your question and comment is, yes, when I sign up on the board, I'm there as a business owner. I want to bring and share my expertise, the tools I've developed. But I also know that at the end of the day, Munib, is what I get back as a business owner from my investment in that organization is multiplied by thousands. I cannot begin to tell you how much I have gained from the networking of working with mind-like people around board tables, the relationship. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we do business with people we know, like, and trust. That's the bottom line. People are around the world, where they come from, their religious background, their cultural background, their, their linguistic background. At the end of the day, we do business with people we know, like, and trust. I always say that your network is your net worth. It's important to create those connections. And I think nothing creates a better connection than working on a board that has a common vision. So, excellent. Now, I understand COVID has had a detrimental impact on many industries. What have you come across in terms of some of the challenges that associations are facing? And what advice do you have for them? as they go through this pandemic? I've seen two models. One where association says, oh, no, no, we've got to shut down. We've got to let go all our staff. We don't have money. We'll never survive this. And we'll come back when COVID is done. 
And then there's other association, which I'm involved with, that said, let's invest in our future. Let's take the moment that we have to sit back to look at how we can do a better job at what we do. So personally, I went back to school. I completed my project management certificate, which had been on my desk for years. I really wanted to get better at planning and organizing and knowing where I was going with my work. And I completed my Canadian certification for association executive as well, which had been dragging for years because of lack of time. So I looked at COVID as to say, okay, I want to come out of COVID smarter than I went in. And I want to be better equipped to serve my people, to serve my tribes, to serve my board and the people that work around me. So when I sat down with the Crane Association, because I'm their CEO, basically, I'm the executive director, and I said to the board, we now have an opportunity to look at how we can better serve our members by going online. What are the platforms out there that can better service our members? So we signed up with an online platform. We onboarded our members. We started doing what you're doing, interviews with our membership, uh, showcasing our manufacturers. I mean, I work with the largest crane manufacturers around the world. And we are, started doing video about their product and service because they were still building cranes. They were still selling cranes. And the crane industry is an essential service. So we started going out to our members in a different way. And I increased the work that community work was doing through Zoom, through virtual platform, and we've actually grown our membership. So when you say, how are people looking at COVID? I looked at COVID to say, what is the lesson I want to learn as I go through this crisis that the world is in? And started looking at what I could do personally to improve myself and better serve my people. And, you know, it's, and I've seen a lot of associations that have closed door that have lost money, that have been completely wiped out because they did not have good policies in place to protect the integrity of the organization in a financial crisis. And I've seen organization, association as well, thrive through um, this pandemic. I mean, digital transformation has had a huge impact in the past couple of years. And I think a lot of organizations and businesses that have used technology to their advantage they have gained quite a bit. It's a matter of changing that mindset. If you have a very closed mindset and you're thinking, okay, that you are not able to overcome this or that things will get better soon and you're waiting for things to get better, it's just not the way to survive. I mean, you have to make sure that you're adapting to the new normal and adopting some of this technology that is out there that can actually help you leverage your communication and continue operations. And what I find is that those organizations that do that, they learn along the way, they make mistakes, but they progress so much more. And when things are destined to get better and, and, and all these uh, lockdowns are, are out of place, things will be so much better for those organizations that have actually thrived through this uh, period. I guess uh, in terms of your organization, as well as your, your background, I mean, where do you see the next decade uh, in terms of association management? How do you see associations evolved, considering that there has been so much change in the past couple of years? I think we're going to see a transformation in, in the association world because 
the ones that have survived have gotten very strong and much stronger than they ever have because they have adopted the virtual world. They're working in hybrid. They have learned to trust their employees to still do a good job from a virtual perspective. We're going to see even more changes. I mean, what scares me when I look at where we're going in the world right now is it's not, I wouldn't say scare, but it, I haven't found the answer yet. It puzzles me as to how we are going to adapt is when a business closes its street office, you know, a restaurant or a store and move on to the virtual world. We are seeing now hundreds of thousands of empty spaces in cities across Canada. We are seeing empty warehouses where people have vacated. We're seeing so much of that. That's the element right now that puzzles me is how, who's going to come around the corner with the brilliant idea of how we are going to repurpose all these empty spaces, because even restaurant owners now are being challenged. So to me, the role of association is, is even more crucial because a good restaurant owner association or a good organization that has the best of the best of each of those business come together to find solutions because we are seeing people going bankrupt because they cannot operate out of those spaces and they're locked into long-term leases. How do you get out of this? So we have to start thinking about how we are going to repurpose in these spaces. I think we're going to see more people moving into what used to be commercial buildings to create unique spaces where people are going to come together to play, enjoy, and network. Because the world of tomorrow, if a good business has good HR policies, you're going to see business letting people work from home because they're producing better, they're happier, they can manage home and school and kids and laundry, but they're also working at 10 or 12 at night or at 2 a.m. when the kids are sleeping and the work is, needs to get done. They're getting up in their pajamas to work. And I tell people that work in my world, don't send emails at 2 a.m. Program all your emails to go out at 8 a.m. so that people don't have permission to call you at 11 a.m., at, at 11 p.m. or 2 a.m. because they just received an email or a text from you. You have to protect your life to be able to operate whenever you're operating, when you feel that you can optimize your time. But don't tell people that they should call you at 11 p.m. or 2 a.m. So you have to teach people how to behave in this new world that we live in. But at the same time, a good company will know that if they want people to communicate and work together, they're going to bring them together to network, to play to get to know each other and learn to trust each other. So a good business is going to have a day dedicated every month or twice a month to bring people together for a great networking time, just to play, to go share a meal, go to a movie together, go play bowling or do whatever so that the workers that are working remotely actually get to play together and get to know each other in a different way than just work, 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 work. 
And I see companies already failing right now because they are forcing people to come back to work in, a, in person, even though their companies or organization has exceeded their goals for the year working remotely. They're forcing people to come back into an office space because they have a lease to pay. It's the ripple effect of all this that really fascinates me when I look at, yes, company XYZ is locked in a lease. People are producing better working from home. I'm forcing them. They're all quitting. And now I'm trying to run a company. Everybody's quitting on me. I have a lease to pay. How do I do that? And that is an answer I haven't found yet. And I hope that people listening to us will come back to you uh, with thoughts and provoking ideas on how we're going to do this. Because I think it's the biggest challenge right now for companies in any organization is how do we let people work in a virtual environment? The ones who love it, not everyone does. We have women and men in difficult environment, women who live under violence at home that the only escape they have is going to work. You have to facilitate both. You have to create a hybrid environment for your workers so that the woman who is not loving the life she has at home has a safe place to come and produce for you, for your organization. You have to have a place where the young couple, you have one that's working from home, the other one cannot work from home because they don't have the right equipment and you've got kids screaming in the background. You have to allow to have a hybrid model moving forward. Otherwise, you will fail royally. And I think these are the, the conversation I've been blessed to be a part of in these last two years of how are we going to create the new world when we have all these complexity of people do want to work virtually, others that don't want to work virtually? How do you create a company that has a beautiful synergy to bring them together at least once or twice a month? If you can do it once a week, even better, that the ones that are working from home and the ones that are working on site can come together and have a great time. And I have one more thing about that I have to share, is what we're also observing is that the people that are climbing the ranks are the ones that are working in person. And that's not right. The one being promoted are the one that show up in the office. When you have an inverted employee who produces like 10 times the amount of work that actually has a greater impact on your bottom line, working from home because he's an introvert, because he doesn't like the cooler talks at the end of the hallway and the gossiping and the who shows up with the best Armani suits and who has the BMW in the parking lot and gets the paid parking. He doesn't like that world. And yet, the only one getting promoted are the ones showing up with the BMW in the garage and the paid parking and show up at the end of the day to go drink with the boss and entertain, I say, the BS around the workplace are the ones getting promoted and the ones that are actually making sure your bottom line meets the pavement are not being rewarded. And that is a massive issue that will have to be reviewed within the workplace. 
because we're going to see a lot of corporation and association failing royally. And I guess, you know, different corporations, they, they obviously they work differently. And I find that, uh, you know, some companies are open to and, and they have a lot of flexibility with their workforce. They give them, you know, the assets and the tools to be able to work from home properly. And they've given them a lot of flexibility. But with that flexibility, if there's no boundaries, then it actually overlaps with your, with your personal life. You know, you were earlier, you were saying that, uh, you know, you, you want to be sending out emails at 8, 8 a.m. in the morning. And I'm guilty of that. You know, I sometimes send out emails and, and respond to clients at the middle of the night because there's, uh, there's no boundaries. <laughs> and, and I can understand how that can come into play. It can actually really have an impact on work-life balance. So it's interesting, you know, you mentioned that point. And uh, I think uh, over time, this is a, a learning phase as well for a lot of companies. I mean, they're learning things. They're trying to make remote work work and also give the flexibility for their employees to come back to their offices. I think there are definitely challenges with remote work. I mean, I know some of the organizations that I'm speaking with, they struggle with uh, having or fostering a culture that is connected with their, with their employees. So they like to have their employees back at their locations, not just because of the lease that they're paying, but also to enforce the culture that they're trying to, trying to have. Uh, but uh, with the limitations and with the lease costs, obviously they want to make use of the space because it is a sunk cost and they're trying to make use of it. But I think that at the end of the day, it's a matter of performance and how you keep people accountable. I was reading this article the other day that Netflix, for example, they allow their employees to go on vacation whenever they want, but they want to make sure that they actually are able, that they're accountable for the work that they're able to perform. So they have a very high performance culture, but everyone's working remotely. And you have more and more companies adopting this, this model. So it's interesting to see, and, and we'll see how things you know, move forward here you know, in the next few years. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting to see this shift that has been happening with businesses. And especially now that things are getting better, what are those businesses doing to still have that flexibility for their workforce to work from home or have them come back, back to the office? Yeah. Claire, on more of a personal note, um, you've had a, a very diverse experience, but if you were to go back, let's say 20 years, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh my goodness. It's, you know, I don't want to live a life with regrets at all, but I think if I could go way, way back and say, stay in school longer, learn, 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 learn. You know, I mean, I took a different path. I'm the youngest of 16 children. I wanted to go and find and grow my wings. I didn't want to be, I'll always be the baby of the family. I mean, even today, they still call me the baby of the family. and. For me, it's it's a question that I chose a path to not go to university and went into business. But from the day that I I started my business, I went back to school and I haven't stopped. I mean, I don't have the degree, but I haven't stopped taking classes for the last 20 years. And if there is one thing I would say to any entrepreneur out there is, if you don't invest in your own skills and abilities to overcome what comes your way as a business owner, why would you expect success? Why would you even expect that others would come to respect you if you don't invest in yourself? So going back, I would say 40 years, I'd say keep your butt in school and carry on instead of getting married and having kids when you're so young. But I don't want to ever say 
I regret the path that I've chosen because I have learned more working nights in a restaurant in Vancouver in my early 20s in psychology, in conflict resolution, in customer service, in attitude, in survival, because you encounter all kinds of situations. So the experience that I have had throughout my life, I've carried and built the woman that I am today. So I would never regret any of that. But if I could get to where I am today a little quicker, I would say, you know, keep learning, keep challenging yourself, get out of your comfort zone in so many different avenues. I mean, for me to learn English as a second language was so challenging, especially when you're an adult, because I learned from my research that when you learn multilingual, you know, when you grow up in a multilingual environment, the language resides in one part of your brain. But when you learn English as a second language in your adult life, the language resides somewhere else in your brain. So when you're working like me, I can have a day that 8 a.m. I have a conference call in French. At 9, I'm working in English in a document. At 10, I have another call in French. At 11, I'm back to English all day long. By 4 p.m., my brain hurts. I have to really sit back and, and fuel myself and go for a walk or step away. So, you know, there are things that going back 20 years, I don't think I would do anything that I'm doing differently, but I would continue learning the previous 20 years, take more classes. Claire, I really appreciate you doing this interview in English. So, <laughs> so uh, I'm still working on my French and as an adult, I can understand the pain that you have to go through when learning a new language. So it's one of my bucket lists to actually learn French because it is something that I do want to accomplish. So, so based on your experience and the challenges that you overcome, I mean, you mentioned a few of those challenges earlier on as well as, um, as you were working in restaurants uh, in your 20s. But over the years, if there was one big takeaway that you could give to our listeners, what would that be? That's a good one. I mean, there's so many things that I've come across in living in a Métis community in Northern Saskatchewan. I think the world that we live in today, I think the biggest takeaway from my experience working with people from diverse backgrounds, color, languages, and culture would be to take away your filters, like literally take away your value set, your upbringing, the way you look at life. And I take the glasses off to, to really do it physically sometimes and take a chance to take account, take account of what's happening around you and don't judge it. And then look at the emotion that you get when you see something that's different than you and really let go of the anger of the resentment or whatever in order to be able to have a conversation, to really go to the depth of why are you being challenged when you encounter an Indigenous person? Why are you being challenged when you encounter a person of color? Why are you being challenged when you encounter someone that has an accent? I can tell you because I have an accent. I have not been given the same equality than other people. And I, can, I could name dozens of times where because I have an accent, because I don't express myself with the same quality of the English language, People will cut me off or won't even allow me to speak. 
because they don't want to challenge their hearing, their understanding, because I speak differently. And now with the, the tsunami of immigrants in Canada and people with different accents and colors, I would say the biggest takeaway from everything I've learned living with Indigenous people or working with Hutterite colonies or working with different cultures over the years, biggest takeaway, take away your filters, look at the situation and ask yourself, do I have a bias right now? Do I have a bias in responding to an email because the name is not an English Canadian name? Do I have a bias in responding to someone or looking at a resume or hiring someone because they speak differently? And I have to share you something, share with you something between you and I. When your first email came to me and I looked at your name, I paused and I said, do I respond to this email? Do I have a bias because Munid Shahib, is that how you pronounce your name? That is right. Yes. Yeah. Am I closing a door that could open a world of opportunities and a wonderful conversation with someone I don't know because his name is not a Canadian name? Like I go through this almost daily now and it's, you know, it's almost embarrassing me to share this with you, Moni, but this is the world we live in now. And that would be the biggest takeaway is when something stops or challenges you, Think about where the bias is. And if it's a good bias or a bad bias, address it for what it is and then make a decision and live with it. Own your decision. That is such a great insight. And uh, Claire, I can completely understand where you're coming from. And I also, from my own experience, uh, when I was starting out my company, 2Web, at the age of 19, it was very challenging. At that time, multiculturalism wasn't existent as much as it is today here in Saskatoon or Saskatchewan in general, it was quite challenging. And I can understand the pain that immigrants or uh, other people go through when they actually are, are, are basically in that situation. So thank you for sharing that. And uh, I'm so glad that you did respond to my email and we're having this conversation here today. And by the way, I love that painting in the background. Can you maybe shed some light on what is that painting about? It's so intriguing. There's a whole story. If we have time, I'll share that story with you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think it's worthwhile because uh, if you can describe the painting here, because obviously on a podcast for the listeners. It's a beautiful buffalo, like a bison in the prairie grassland. And the sky is stormy and you can see there's a storm on the horizon. The colors are vibrant. That painting speaks to me so loudly. And the reason it's there is because of COVID. I wanted to be able to look at something beautiful when I sat in, when you were looking at your reflection all day long in, in Zoom meetings and Teams meeting, I wanted to have something inspiring to look at. So the story starts many, many years ago. I had uh, an employee who was a new Canadian. She immigrated from France. Her name is Rose. And Rose started working for me and I could see she was struggling. She, she was always be looking at the screen really, really closely and, and squinting. And, and one day after a few months, I think she was with me for almost a year, she came to work and said, I'm sorry, but I have to quit. And I thought, why do you have to quit? 
I mean, do you have another job or a new opportunity that, good, what can I do to keep you? She says, no, I'm, I'm losing my eyesight. I have a degenerative disease that is taking away my vision. And before I lose my vision completely, I have to paint. I want to paint. So Rose left and uh, about a year or two later, we reconnected and I walked into her home and this painting was hanging on the wall and I was dumbfounded. I was stunned. I was shocked at the beauty of this work. I said to her, oh my God, will you ever let me buy this painting? And she said, no, my, this is my heart paint. Uh, this is my, the painting that will probably stay with me for the rest of my life because it, it has a lot of meaning to me. Being from France, the buffalo is mystique to me. And I want the buffalo to be roaming the prairies again, because at that time, there was no bisons in the Prairie National Park. There were no bisons reintroduced in Saskatchewan. And through my career, uh, Monib, I, I had an event in 2010 that nearly destroyed me. It was such a hard, hard period in my life, and it would be too long to explain, but I I hit a brick wall. It was devastating to me because of my own lack of abilities to overcome what I was facing. And during that period, I discovered Wilma Mankiller, an amazing Cherokee chief. She was the first female Cherokee chief who had a quote for her people. It was like this. It was be the buffalo. And the meaning behind be the buffalo is that the buffalo, when facing the storm, unlike the cows, the sheep, and the horses, does not go into hiding. It goes right straight at the storm, right through the storm. And be the buffalo for her people was don't give up. Don't get down. Like if you do get down, get up. Be the buffalo. Run toward the storm. And I held that as a, as a mantra. And every day waking up, having to go through the storm I was going through, I would remind myself, be the buffalo. So that painting today is still very powerful to me. And when COVID started, I called Rose and I said, can we go for coffee? I, I want to catch up. And, and we had a wonderful time together. And I said to her, Rose, is your buffalo ready to come home to me? And when she said yes, I could have cried because I knew this was going to be on my wall and I will cherish this story for the rest of my life. So... That's my gift to you. Be the buffalo. Wow. Claire, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Where can people find out more about yourself and contact you online? They can Google me. They can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, the CMT Management Group has very little presence online. I have worked for 20 years to word of mouth and, and recommendations from others. I don't spend time selling myself, I, but you will find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook and through my website. Um, I'm easy to find. I'm always there to mentor people. If they, they take the time to reach out to me to talk, uh, 
I'll always find time to, to connect back and see what I can do to support you. But at the end of the day, this world, a virtual world, you know, we're a Zoom call away, a telephone call away. And, and if people need governance, they need to understand how to make an association function effectively. I'm happy to chat with you and see if we're a good fit. I would never work with someone or an organization that doesn't have, you have to have alignment. You have to have shared values and, and goals in order to connect. That's why I love the work that I do. I, the board that I contribute to have to be aligned with my own personal value. The people in the crane industry in Canada certainly do align with my set of values. And I'm now doing a little bit of consulting work in a local association here in Regina. So all of this to me has to align with who you are as an individual, what makes you tick, what makes you excited to wake up in the morning and go to work. So true. Well, Claire, we'll definitely include the links to your profile as well as your website in this podcast. I certainly wish you the best and uh, please stay in touch. It's been an honor meeting you and chatting with you and, and thank you for reaching out to me. It's been a great experience. Thank you for doing this. You're welcome. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening and we hope you found this episode useful. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can see more information and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at saskentrepreneurs.com. That's S-A-S-K entrepreneurs.com. This episode is brought to you by TwoWeb. Growing your business online is overwhelming. At TwoWeb, we make it simple. Our agency has helped over 700 businesses and nonprofit organizations grow through digital marketing. Learn more and reach out to us at TwoWeb.ca.